Hello and welcome to another um, session from Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter and today it is my pleasure to share with you articles from the May 22nd to 29th issue of Time magazine. Uh, remember you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired and any materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Starting from the section called The Brief, uh, headline, title, Digital Blind Spot by Vera Bergen-Gruen. The U.S. government's security clearance process is struggling to keep up online. In November 2020, Jack Texiera wrote a letter to the local police chief asking him to reconsider allowing him to own guns. The Dighton, Massachusetts police had denied the 18-year-old's two previous requests for a firearms license, citing an incident when Texiera was suspended for alleged vile and racial threats, including comments about guns at school. This time, Texiera's pleas worked. As a newly minted member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, he had recently received a top-secret security clearance. The investigation process was extremely thorough, he wrote to the police, arguing that the U.S. government had deemed him qualified to become a person that now has the national trust to safeguard classified information. That trust turned out to be misplaced. In April, Texera was arrested and charged with posting classified military documents online in the most damaging leak of U.S. intelligence in a decade revealing sensitive information about the war in Ukraine and complicating relations with U.S. allies. Federal investigators also found that he had continued to regularly post about violence and murder in online forums, researched mass shootings, amassed an arsenal of weapons in his home, and asked for advice on how to turn an SUV into an assassination van. Not surprisingly, these revelations have raised new questions about the U.S. government's security clearance process. For decades, the system has made judgments about whom to grant clearances based on the whole person concept, considering the totality of the person's conduct in order to determine whether they pose an acceptable level of risk. The probe scrutinizes both personal and professional lives, from family relationships and interactions with foreigners to finances, mental health, and sexual behavior, psychological state, past handling of protected information, and drug and alcohol use. Social media would seem an obvious place to look. But online-offline interactions, an applicant's digital life, like social media posts or online groups they belong to, is not typically analyzed and is very rarely investigated, according to national security legal experts and U.S. officials. Dozens of cases in recent years have exposed the double lives led online by people who underwent rigorous screenings to be granted high-level clearances. The government's blind spot only grows larger as a new generation of military service members intelligence officers, government officials, and contractors come of age online. Our physical and digital lives are merging, says Merrick Posard, a military sociologist at the RAND Corporation. If the government does, in fact, want to assess risk using the whole person concept, 
we need to recognize that people's lives exist online. The challenge is that following the digital trails of millions of applicants would raise a host of privacy and First Amendment issues and perhaps overwhelm an already bulky process. Parsing teenagers' sometimes problematic but benign Internet activity could also cause the U.S. to lose out on qualified applicants at a time when the military is struggling to recruit. In some realms, security clearance criteria have been periodically updated to keep up with the times. Guidance from the 1960s, for example, listed cohabitation and homosexuality as risk factors. Yet the online lives of applicants, including the 1.3 million with top-secret clearances, remain largely off-limiteds. The Investigator's Handbook is antiquated. Merton Miller, the Associate Director for the Federal Investigative Services, told congressional investigators probing flaws in the system in 2014. I think most people would say it's a no-brainer. Subsequent updates to the security clearance criteria for individuals to access classified information have mentioned social media monitoring, but put few concrete practices into effect. Almost 20 years after Facebook began, the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which conducts the vast majority of background checks on people like Tixiera, is still assessing options to integrate publicly available social media information searches into personal vetting, a spokesman told Time. There is no shortage of examples. In more than a dozen recent high-profile cases reviewed by Time magazine, individuals with high-level security clearance left clear and often brazen trails online showing their links to extremist groups, violent propaganda, anti-government activities, and leaks of classified U.S. information. The security vetting procedures are approaching a crossroads given the widespread use of social media and its existence as an untapped source of information for investigators, says Brad Moss, a lawyer who specializes in security clearance law. Whether that would solve the problem is another matter. The clearance process would have to keep up with the proliferation of online platforms like Discord, where tomorrow's applicants often spend their time. With almost 50% of active-duty U.S. service members under the age of 25, failing to do so could lead to a fresh generation of problems. There needs to be a sustained effort to understand what trends are occurring, says Possard, and what platforms are emerging on the forefront where there could be new risks. All right, the second item. Title, She Was Tucker Carlson's Office Mom. Now, she's suing. This is by Charlotte Alter. People consume this, take it to heart, and then they act on it. At first, Abby Grossberg thought Fox News would be her big break. When she got a job as the main producer of Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Baratomo in 2019, she was responsible for booking guests, meeting newsmakers, even sitting in on phone calls with President Donald Trump. In 2022, she moved over to Tucker Carlson Tonight, where she became head of booking. But in recent weeks, Grossberg has filed two lawsuits against her former employer. In one suit, filed in Delaware, she alleges that Fox News lawyers bullied her into giving false and misleading testimony 
in Dominion Voting Systems defamation case against Fox, which the network settled in April for $787.5 million. According to Grossberg, the lawyers for the company coached her to shade her deposition in the Dominion lawsuit and coerced her to implicate herself and Bartiromo rather than Fox News executives. On May 9th, Grossberg dropped that lawsuit, although her lawyer has said she intends to refile it in a different jurisdiction. In another lawsuit, filed in New York, Grossberg alleges that she was unfairly denied a promotion at Sunday Morning Futures and that the work environment at Tucker Carlson Tonight was so hostile to women that it triggered a nervous breakdown. She's now suing for economic, punitive, and emotional distress damages. Grossberg was fired by Fox on March 24th. She alleges the company fired her because she disclosed information about the Dominion case in her lawsuit. Fox says the termination was related to her performance. Fox News engaged an independent outside counsel to immediately investigate the concerns raised by Ms. Grossberg, which were made following a critical performance review, a Fox News person said in a statement. We will continue to vigorously defend Fox against her unmeritorious legal claims, which are riddled with false allegations against the network and our employees. Carlson's attorney did not reply to a request for comment. In an extended interview with Time, Grossberg offered her perspective about the charges at the core of both of these lawsuits. That Fox's relentless pursuit of ratings, combined with alleged gender discrimination at the company, created an environment where falsehoods and conspiracy theories thrived unchecked. On her first day at Tucker Carlson Tonight, Crossberg says she walked into the office to find it plastered with photographs of Nancy Pelosi in a bikini. Soon, she says, she noticed that one of the senior producers had a mirror on his desk with the C word written on it. And every time I spoke out, I was excluded from meetings, further marginalized, berated in front of my team, Grossberg recalls. There is a feeling of she's the office mom. While she never met Carlson in person, he worked mostly remotely, Grossberg says he would often demand staff find support for what he wanted to air, whether or not it was true. Tucker sent marching orders every morning of what he wanted and what the angles were going to be, and many of them were conspiracy theories, she said. It was always like, here's my point of view. This is what I want to say tonight. Find somebody who will say that. Carlson's researchers combed right-wing fever swamps for incendiary stories, Grossberg alleges. They would raise things and be like, we just can't find this. We cannot connect these dots. And then it would be on the airway anyway, she said. They looked at the ratings minute by minute. Carlson seemed secure at Fox. Bartiromo was different. Soon after arriving at Fox News, Brosberg says, she sensed Bartiromo had a target on her back. I noticed the misogyny, how she was treated by other people at Fox, Crossberg recalls. She says she was once berated by a Fox senior producer for being too candid with Bartiromo. He said, she's menopausal. She's crazy. We don't tell her things. This environment made Bartiromo, who still works at Fox, Desperate for anything that could shore up her position, Grossberg says. 
She believed the anchor's relationship with President Trump insulated Bartiromo. But when Trump lost the election, Bartiromo was desperate to hold on to her that job insurance, Grossberg says. Even when Trump official told Bartiromo that Joe Biden had won the election, the show became, as Grossberg puts it in her suit, the tip of the spear in delivering the big lie. Bartiromo gave Trump extended airtime before the 2020 election to lay the groundwork for conspiracy theories, then hosted him for a post-election interview in which he sprayed falsehoods about the outcome. She interviewed Trump attorney Sidney Powell several times, giving Powell a platform to spread lies about voter fraud. Rosberg's job often included recording Bartiromo's calls, and she is in talks to provide some of her transcripts to the office of special counsel Jack Smith, who was appointed to investigate Trump's attempts to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power. Grossberg alleges in her lawsuit that in one call in December of 2020, a senior Trump ad- advisor stated, quote, that there were, in fact, no issues with those Dominion machines. She says the advisor wanted to emphasize something else, the January 6th date as the true backstop for determining the validity of the election. Grossberg says that moment and the insurrection that followed was her wake-up call. She concluded that Trump and his allies were using Fox News to promote claims about election fraud that they knew were false and that those claims could lead to real political violence. Seeing what we covered and then seeing the violence and thinking, oh, you have a responsibility here with what we're doing. This isn't just about ratings and entertainment, she says. This is not just a business. People consume this, they take it to heart, and they act on it. Now, she says, her eyes are opened. I see how that power and seduction influences people. All right, moving on to The Risk Report by Ian Bremmer. Title, Erdogan May Face Both an Election and a Decision. For more than 20 years, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has remade and dominated Turkey's politics. First as prime minister, then as president, he built a political foundation with support from voters outside the country's powerhouse cities, Istanbul, Ankara, and Izmir, with appeals to traditional religious values and socially conservative policies. Over time, however, he has also polarized the country by amassing more and more executive power in his own hands and by silencing, in some cases, imprisoning critics and journalists who tell stories he doesn't like. He has sidelined judges who don't rule his way. Following a failed military coup in 2016, he purged the upper ranks of the army. Now he faces his toughest test. The largest opposition parties have united behind the candidacy of a single challenger, a technocrat named Kemal Kilikdaroglu. Voting began on May 14th, and a second round one-off on May 28th appears likely between the combative and charismatic Erdogan and the mild-mannered and consensus-oriented Kilikdaroglu. Current polling says this race could go either way. Outsiders will focus on expected differences in their foreign policies. Even as a member of the NATO alliance, Erdogan has established a degree of independence between the West and Russia. At various times, he has both courted and infuriated Russia, Europe, and the United States with a transactional approach to nearly every important question. 
His ability to play one off the other is limited by Turkey's dependence for security on NATO and on Russia for a strong economy, particularly in the tourism sector. Erdogan has not joined other NATO members in full backing for Ukraine, but he has offered Turkey's services as a crucial dealmaker, including on the flow of both Ukrainian and Russian agricultural products out of the Black Sea and into the Mediterranean. Erdogan's harsh words for the EU and some European governments, and his foot-dragging on questions like NATO membership for Finland and Sweden, has made him a gadfly in Brussels. That's the main reason a, a Kilkadarglu victory would be welcomed in Europe and in Washington. His foreign policy would focus on restoring trust in Turkey's reliability as an ally for both NATO and the European Union, even as he continues to approach Vladimir Putin with pragmatic caution. Kilkadarglu would also be expected to breathe new life into Turkey's long-term bid to join the European Union. If so, EU officials would respond with warm diplomatic pleasantries. But the cost of support for Ukraine and hesitancy in Europe about Turkey's longer-term direction will encourage Brussels to slow play a return to serious accession negotiations. Yet, there's a more immediate question that has the attention of observers both inside and outside Turkey. If Kilkadarglu wins the presidency by a razor-thin margin, might Erdogan simply reject the result? He's done it before. When his party candidate lost the race for mayor of Istanbul in 2019, Erdogan forced Turkey's electoral court to annul the result and rerun the election. This strategy would work only if the vote is extremely close. But the stakes for Erdogan are now much higher. This time it's his name on a nationwide ballot. If Erdogan hesitates, it would likely be because his party then lost that rerun Istanbul mayor's race by a much bigger margin, dealing Erdogan's reputation for political invincibility a blow from which it hasn't fully recovered. It would still be a mistake to underestimate Erdogan's willingness to urge his supporters into the streets, and opposition demonstrators would be quick to respond, creating political upheaval. It would also be a mistake to doubt Erdogan's ability to win. His political talent and the loyalty of her supporters does remain formidable. Uh, continuing on with Health Matters by Jamie Ducharme, Times Health Correspondent. Researchers have long tracked the mental health of America's teenage girls. They found that depression has become more common over the past decade, and in 2015, the suicide rate among teenage girls hit a 40-year high. More recently, data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has shown that nearly 60% of U.S. teenage girls feel sad or hopeless. And in 2021, 30% said they had considered suicide in the prior year up from 24% two years earlier, a new report finds. In addition, about 24% had made a suicide plan, 13% had attempted suicide, and 4% required medical care related to an attempt. Among boys, those percentages were about 14%, 12%, 7%, and 2% respectively. 
Suicidal thinking was more common among teens who did not identify as heterosexual. American Indian or Alaska Native girls were most at risk, but rates among black, Hispanic, and white female students rose most dramatically. It's hard to say why these rates are increasing, since suicidal behavior rarely has only one cause. But understanding why certain teenagers are more likely than others to think about, plan for, and attempt suicide may help researchers design school or community-based support programs. Noting the differing rates among teenagers of various genders, sexual orientations, and racial and ethnic backgrounds, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report suggests developing interventions tailored to people of all identities. So if you or someone you know may be experiencing a mental health crisis or even contemplating suicide, please call or text 988. Continuing with the DC Brief by Philip Elliott. Washington correspondent for time. Dianne Feinstein had already made history back in 1978 when she became the first woman elected to lead the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, effectively setting the agenda for the legislative arm of the country's eighth largest economy at the time. She was, in practice, the Speaker of the San Francisco House. But when a former colleague turned assassin returned to City Hall with the intent to kill four political rivals, it was Feinstein who found her colleague, Harvey Milk, dead. Five bullets struck America's first out gay politician, including two directly into Milk's head at point-blank range, just down the corridor from Feinstein's office. Before reaching Milk's office, the gunman had killed Mayor George Moscone, leaving a vacuum that demanded Feinstein immediately rise to become the first woman to lead San Francisco. For Feinstein, the circumstances of her promotion to mayor felt deeply unrewarding. But she would go on to win the seat on her own and serve for 10 years. It was one of the string of firsts that would mark a remarkable career in politics, stretching from her first appointment in 1960 to the California Women's Parole Board until now, when she is the oldest member of the U.S. Senate and, owing to challenging health these days, its most debated future. To say Feinstein, now 89, approaching 90, is facing mounting pressure to resign would be to undersell the frustration among even her biggest fans. Feinstein is fast becoming a master class in how to spoil a legacy. She is providing a stunning demonstration in how to soil an inevitable obituary with tales of missteps rather than of purpose. Rather than being missing in action, she is now seen as absent without leave, even by her apologists. Senator Dick Durbin, by no means a radical in his caucus, and Feinstein's successor as the top Democrat on the powerful Judiciary Committee, made clear how much the narrative has shifted. The bottom line is the business of the committee and of the Senate is affected by her absence. Feinstein's truancy for the past almost three months, ostensibly to fight shingles, has left the Senate largely paralyzed, especially on the most important thing Democrats can do without the cooperation of the Republican-led House, and that is to confirm federal judges. 
Then, on May 9th, her office confirmed that her doctors had cleared her to return to Washington, where no doubt she would have to join blunt talks about her party's future, with or without her vote. Absent a functioning Judiciary Committee, Democrats in the Senate are largely left to chase bipartisan fever dreams and bat back House Republican stunts. Without her vote, Democrats were stuck with a listless 10 to 10 tie on the judiciary. Put bluntly, if she can't be a constant presence, Feinstein could leave her Democratic colleagues wasting time in the 118th Congress, which ends in early 2025. Feinstein had long kept her plans vague, as is the right of anyone facing such a personal decision rooted on a health crisis. But her 40 million constituents also deserve representation. And absent a voting lawmaker for months, that was getting tougher and tougher to defend. Feinstein has been a remarkable force for good if you share her grounding in democratic politics. Her run is almost unrivaled by any of her colleagues, male or female. Yet the political pressure bearing on her now is impossible to ignore. She's been a first in so many roles, but may be the last to realize her time away from Washington is about so much more than herself. Moving on to um, a, a society item. Headline, Teach Citizenship the Way the Founders Intended by Sal Khan and Jeffrey Rosen. Respective heads of the educational organizations Khan Academy and the National Constitution Center. New data released by the Department of Education, known as the nation's report card, and widely regarded as the best assessment of how well we're educating our future citizens, paints a stark and worrying picture. Eighth graders scored worse on the history section this year than in any other year since the test was first administered on the subject in 1994. And civics scores dropped for the first time since it was first tested in 1998. Fewer than one in four students scored as proficient. The problem is not necessarily in the classroom. When our political leaders wage school wars over what historical models can and cannot be taught, they signal to students that certain views are simply not worth considering. When our news media promote the loudest and most antagonistic voices, students learn that shouting is more effective than listening. And when parents refuse to engage with arguments that they disagree with, students come to believe that listening to opposing viewpoints is a sign of weakness rather than of civic strength. Small wonder then that according to a recent UCLA UCI Riverside study, more than two-thirds of high school principals reported substantial political conflict over hot-button issues inside their classrooms. We will endanger the American project if we fail to teach our children the principles of our democracy and the habits of civil dialogue necessary to sustaining it. Instead of building a better future by finding common ground, they will only slide deeper into partisanship and extremism. Fortunately, there is a way out. But it requires a new way of thinking about civic education. We need to teach students not just history and civics, 
but also the virtues, virtues of democratic citizenship, beginning with the ability to consider arguments with which we disagree and to engage in dialogue and deliberation with people who hold views different from our own. In practice, this means giving students a rigorously nonpartisan education in American history and civics. We must expose them to the best arguments on all sides of the major constitutional debates, past and present, and give them the tools to make up their own minds. At the founding, leading framers, including George Washington and James Madison, dreamed of a national university that would bring together young Americans of different perspectives and backgrounds to teach the habits of deliberation and the core civic knowledge necessary to informed citizenship. They never built this institution, but technology makes it possible today. For example, our organizations are partnering to create a free online Constitution 101 course premised on a simple act, bringing together experts who genuinely disagree about the most important constitutional issues facing our nation today, and using their examples to model thoughtful, respectful, civil dialogue. With a faculty composed of leading conservative and liberal historians, constitutional scholars, judges, and public servants, our course will teach students America's constitutional principles using primary sources spanning U.S. history, including Supreme Court decisions and the dissents. Exposed to ideas across the ideological spectrum, students will have the content and the space to consider America's past and present from multiple perspectives and reach their own conclusions. There is already evidence that this approach works. In research conducted during a pilot phase of this new course, we found that 20% of students reported an increased desire to engage in difficult conversations, both inside and outside their classrooms. As we approach America's 250th birthday in 2026, we have the opportunity to reverse our civic spiral and revitalize knowledge of the ideals rooted in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that unite us. It will take all the adults in the room to show our young citizens that compromise and deliberation are not vestiges of their grandparents' America. Uh, moving on now to headline or title. Texas could be the world's clean energy capital. But does it want to be? By Justin Worland in Houston. Bobby Tudor made a fortune in fracking. The clean-cut financier opened shop in 2007 and spent the next 10 years backing large-scale projects in West Texas, supercharging one of his history's greatest oil and gas expansions. But over lunch in February, even as he predicted that oil and gas would be around for the foreseeable future, Tudor offered a dimmer view of the industry's role in the region. Oil and gas is just not going to be the same engine for growth, he told me. It will flatten, and then it will decline. Which is why Tudor, a consummate Texas fossil fuel money man, is betting big on green energy. It's not hard to see why. 
the state is already the largest producer of renewable energy in the U.S. Clean technology startups are flocking to the Houston region, and big energy companies are pursuing hydrogen projects across the state. The city of Houston alone could receive as much as $250 billion in annual investment in the emerging energy sector by 2040, according to data from McKinsey, thanks in part to its existing infrastructure and skilled labor force. Tudor has started a new firm focused on cutting emissions and is chairing a powerful business coalition dedicated to the transition and composed some of the biggest names in energy including ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Shell. In Houston, when we see $1 laying on the ground, he said, we bend over and pick it up. There's just one problem. Politics. While many cities, states, and even countries are fighting for the trillions of dollars in public and private green investments that are transforming the energy industry, Many Texas leaders, including a powerful segment of the state's political leadership, are opposing the new opportunities. Some fear that clean energy will hurt the state's incumbent fossil fuels business, but many oppose the energy transition as a proxy for opposing Democrats, another way to prove to the conservative base that they are the reddest around. The result is a raft of measures that could hamper green energy projects and incentivize carbon-heavy ones. These divisions are setting up a surprising high-stakes fight. Tudor's coalition, the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, organized by the city's most prominent business group and its members, are putting serious cash behind new energy efforts. But some politicians are pushing back, launching efforts to slow renewable energy and publicly vilifying environment initiatives. Major oil and gas firms may have supported us in the past, but they certainly don't align with us now, says Jason Isaac of the conservative Texas Public Policy Foundation. They're going to go and chase money, and it's unfortunate. The fight in Texas can tell us a lot about the bigger push to address climate change. A well-executed transition would help cut global emissions, create wealth and opportunity for millions of Texans, and set an example for the world. But the unfolding debate also shows why it's not so simple. Politics and culture are powerful forces everywhere. And despite mounds of evidence about the value of, the tra of transition, it's unclear whether the long-term economic considerations will win out. We all have an interest in the outcome. We need to do it for commercial reasons, says Tudor, but we have a responsibility to do it too. The challenges of climate change and the energy transition broadly are so enormous, they're not going to be solved without us. On the news and in popular culture, Texas can seem like a MAGA fever dream as politicians race to pass anti-abortion laws and grandstand about critical race theory. But the business community driving the state's economy gives a very different impression. Chatting at a sleek Italian restaurant in Houston's eclectic Montrose neighborhood, Tudor sounds more patrician than partisan. We talk about oil prices, yes, but also about Houston's diversity and civic life and the divergence between energy industry financial returns and the region's economic development. 
It's an old school vision of companies as pillars of the community that Tudor and many of his fellow executives share, one where business and government are partners in the greater good. It's a reading rooted in history. Before the 20th century, Texas was a largely rural agrarian state. The discovery of vast oil reserves in 1901 changed that almost overnight. Within a matter of years, the oil industry expanded rapidly, and so did the state's urban centers. Whether by necessity or ideology, the government has largely stayed out of the way of the private companies that drove this rapid growth and economic prosperity. That has left Texas well positioned to capitalize on the energy transition. Building big infrastructure projects in Texas is easy thanks to a light regulatory environment. Much of the existing infrastructure, think pipelines, can be converted to carry carbon dioxide or hydrogen. The state has the highest concentration of chemical engineers in the country, jobs well suited not just for oil and gas, but also for new energy technologies. And the local higher education system, funded in large part by industry, has top programs to continue churning out energy workers. But it's hard for a transition to catch on when there is so much money to be made in petroleum. At times, over the course of the past 50 years, oil and gas has constituted 15% of the state's economic output, according to data from the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, and the state's broader economy in turn oriented toward fossil fuels as well. The industry's prospects have, whip performing, have whipsawed lately. The sector already had been underperforming the rest of the stock market in the years before COVID-19 hit. As energy demand tanked worldwide amid the lockdown, the price of oil briefly went negative, sending shockwaves throughout the industry. This unprecedented upheaval coincided with the beginning of Tudor's campaign to get the industry to embrace the transition. An energy price spike driven by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and COVID-19 reopenings has led to dramatic profits for the industry and softened the short-term financial urgency of embracing this transition. But the immense volume of capital flowing into clean energy, especially as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, has sparked newfound resolve in the local business community to go green. The Inflation Reduction Act was a turning point, said Grade Matlock, who leads EY's America's Energy Transition Practice. We were on the phone with clients, and within a week you could see tangible movement on transactions. It was quick, and it was palpable. In Houston, it's easy to see this on the ground. The downtown skyscrapers are full of incumbent oil companies, but a couple of miles away in what city officials are calling the Innovation District, a new energy ecosystem is taking shape. I visit the office of ERA Partners, a private equity shop with a self-proclaimed industrial decarbonization strategy that sees profits in helping companies cut their carbon footprint. Houston was the right place because the world of made things is made here, says Troy Thacker, the firm's CEO. Across the street, I visited Greentown Labs, 
an incubator where dozens of startups are working on everything from installing wind turbines more efficiently to turning cow manure into an alternative fuel source. Houston startups alone received $1.95 billion in venture capital money in 2022, with energy-related startups raising almost as much as the next three sectors combined, according to data from the Greater Houston Partnership. Across the state, investments from new and incumbent players aim to make Texas a world leader in green hydrogen, a clean way to store renewable energy. In Matagora County, south of Houston, a company known as Highly Innovative Fuels, funded in part by old-school energy players like Baker Hughes, is building a massive facility that will use renewable electricity, green hydrogen, and technology that captures carbon dioxide. A venture capital-backed energy company named Humble Midstream is building a hydrogen export facility. McKinley estimates the hydrogen economy alone could be worth $100 billion to the state's economy. In Austin, I watched Jane Stricker, the executive director of HETI, present a vision of Texas as a capital of the energy transition to a gathering of lobbyists, regulators, and legislators. Her pitch, policymakers should join with business leaders to speed the shift. We can solidify our position if we really lean into our role, said Stricker, a former BP executive. We have the opportunity to create massive economic growth. But for all of Texas's business-friendly swagger, not everyone views a public-private green collaboration as a good thing. Responding to Stricker at the energy gathering, a Texas energy industry insider questioned whether the state's businesses were actually on board. Then, challenged the entire premise. Can you articulate? Transition from what to what, he asked. In the discussions that followed, academics, elected officials, and business leaders laid out a range of positions. A renewable energy lobbyist decried GOP attempts to stomp out his industry. A state regulator laughed off a question about using funds from President Biden's infrastructure law. Business leaders try to play down the political opposition they face, arguing that ultimately lawmakers won't turn down easy money. But while there are mixed opinions in Texas's GOP, today opposition to clean energy and climate policy is defying the state's business-friendly reputation and threatening to slow the transition in Texas. Nowhere is that opposition clearer than in state government offices in Austin. The state legislature is crafting policies to stymie renewable energy. One bill would create new permitting requirements just for renewable energy projects, requiring plant developers to evaluate the impacts on wildlife. Fossil fuel power plants would be exempt. Other measures would provide those plants new state subsidies. There definitely is a contingent that's looking to push up natural gas by pulling renewables down, said Daniel Cohan, an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at Rice University. And then there's the anti-ESG rhetoric, a new front in the culture wars. 
Texas has banned a group of financial firms from doing business with state and local governments for using environmental, social, and government metrics. These moves send a signal that green businesses are not welcome. It could go faster if the state political forces were less antagonistic, says Kay McCall, president of the Renewable Energy Alliance, Houston. When you look at it, it's almost silly. As a fly on the wall in startup conference rooms in Houston and Austin, I got a sense of the mood. Outraged but optimistic that economics will prevail over politics. Texas will realize some of its potential because of the direction of the market and the allure of tax incentives. The state's pro-business roots, skilled workforce, and abundant natural resources have set it up to do big things in the energy transition. But the outcome is not preordained. State politicians seem determined to limit green opportunities that big energy companies are eager to pursue. Even if they can overcome the political hurdles, activists worry that a business-led approach to the energy transition may not be the best for the world, as companies don't want to give up profits to be made in oil and gas. Which means many Texans may end up less green and less prosperous than it could be. All right, and let's stop there at that point. And you have been listening to articles from the May 22 to 29 issue of Time Magazine. I need to remind you again that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired and materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share articles from Time Magazine with you.